Two weeks ago, we began a series in the book of Colossians, and we've entitled the series Enough. And the reason we've entitled it Enough is that Paul was writing to a new church uh, that had been planted in the city of Colossae. And uh, a lot of good things were happening, but there were some things that were causing some fear and consternation. And that is there were some false teachings that were sliding into that church. And the best way to describe it is there was an element of syncretism. And syncretism is whenever you begin to mix different elements together. And when you mix different elements together, it turns out to be a different product than what you started with. And so they were taught the gospel of Christ, the same gospel that, that the Apostle Paul had taught to a guy by the name of Epaphras who went over there and helped plant that church. And so they had the gospel as we know in God's word and as we teach and preach every day. But yet in, the, in that church, people began to circle around and say, but I think that we need to add this to it. And I think also we need to add this. And they began to add a lot of things to it. And all of a sudden you look at the next product and it doesn't look anything like what the gospel looked like. The same thing happens today when we try to add different things in our culture and this looks like this feels good and looks good. And I think that teaching may sound all right. And we begin to mix these things together and all of a sudden what we call Christianity in 2017 doesn't look anything like Christianity did in the first century and what has been preached and taught. And so what Paul does, he's written this letter to let them know, hey, the gospel is enough, just like it is. And in the midst of that, he also says that Jesus is enough. We don't need to add to him. We don't need to subtract. He is enough. And for, all, for many in our society, we are taught or people will teach us and share with us that Jesus was a good man. And historically, I know he existed. He's a good man and he's a good teacher. But they leave it at that. And, and you can't go with that. You cannot hold on to the fact that Jesus was just a good man and a good teacher. He doesn't give you that option. He claimed to be the son of God. And so he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. So you have to figure out which one of those that he is. And what Paul has done is he, in this next passage of scripture, he deals with that with the Colossians and tries to kind of put that to bed. And it should solve the problem with them and it should solve the problem for us. As we try to, as we live in this culture and hear more and more people say, you can have your Jesus, but um, just don't put him in a supreme place. You can put him in a place, just not a supreme place. We're not going to deny Jesus. We're just going to dethrone him. You can have him, but he just can't be where you place him. And so in these few verses that we'll look in chapter one, Paul elevates Christ to the position that he should be in and give us a better understanding as to who he is. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them to Colossians chapter one, and we will start in the 15th verse, and we're going to read verses 15 through 23. Now, to show the preeminence of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, I want you, as we read through these verses, make note of every time you see the word all or you see the word everything. Okay, starting in verse 15. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before 
all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's a lot of alls in there and a lot of everythings in there. So I want us to take those, this passage and just simply, we're just going to break it down in a couple different areas. Number one, the very first thing is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. Now, he is supreme in authority over all things. And there's two things in particular we want to talk about. He is supreme in creation, and he's supreme in the church. Let's just first of all look at creation. He says that he is supreme in creation. And we see this a number of ways in verses 15 uh, through 17. In verse 15, first thing we see is that he is the image of God. He is the image of God. It said in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. That means he has the exact likeness of God. Jesus has the exact likeness of God. In Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of God. Philip uh, said to Jesus, he says, show us the Father. And Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the first thing that we know about Jesus is that he is the image of God. He is the exact representation of God. He is God. I, I love the little story about a little boy that um, I was talking to his mama, and as he was talking to his mama, he looked up in the sky, and he asked her, he says, Mom, does, is God up there? And she assured him, yes, he is. And then he looked at her, and he says, wouldn't it be nice if sometime he'd just poke his head around and let us be able to see him? Well, let me tell you, he did more than just poke his head around. You know, what he did was he stepped out of heaven onto earth. And when he stepped out of heaven onto earth and he became fully God, fully man, had the essence of the Father in his divinity, he had the essence of one as a man in his humanity. And as he came here, he showed us who God was so that we could understand more of who God was. And then as we'll see further down the road, he then dies for our sins, even as was shared in the prayer that our children were sharing up here. Jesus is the perfect picture of God. He is the image of God. And so he is supreme over all creation because he is the image of God. Number two, it says he's the firstborn over all creation. At the end of verse 15, he says the firstborn of all creation. Now, sometimes when you see that word firstborn, you think, oh, that means he's the first thing that was created. Not at all. That word firstborn is a word that means supremacy and rank, supremacy and rank. He is over all creation. When he says he's the firstborn of creation, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement of, of power and position to where he is supreme, he ranks over all creation. And the reason I know that is because when you get to verse 16 and 17, he says 
that he was before all things were created and it says he created all things. So if you're before all things that created and you created all things, there ain't no way that you could be someone that was created. You had to be above all that and he was. So he's before everything that was created and he created everything. He is the firstborn over all creation. That means that he is in rank and in dignity over all creation. Jesus is supreme. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn of creation. Then you go to verse 16, and it says he's the agent of creation. In verse 16, it says, by him, all things were created. By him, all things were created. Some of your translations have the word in. That Greek word that's by can be trans translated by or in. So in him, all things were created. It meant that it occurred within the sphere of his person. He was the originating center. He was the location from which everything came into being. And he is Lord over the creation because he made creation. He is the agent of creation. He made creation. It came from him. Thus creation owes its unity, its meaning, its very existence to him. And the essential reason for Christ's lordship over creation, his supremacy, is because he is the creator. And Paul says that he was involved in creating everything in heaven and on earth, things that were visible, things that were invisible. Visible, everything that you can see, hear, touch, taste, he created. The invisible, the things that you can't see, spiritual beings, all these things, he says, Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. And so why did he do all that? Well, look at the end of verse 16. And it says, for by him all things were created, heaven and earth, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created for him. That means that all creation is to serve his will. Everything exists to display his glory and ultimately he will be glorified in all of creation. Okay, and you just kind of stop for a moment, catch your breath. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He's the image of God, the exact likeness of God. He is the firstborn over creation. It means he ranks over all creation. He's the agent of creation. He is the one who created everything, and it was all created for him so that it would display his glory. But then you also pick up and find out he's the sustainer of all creation, the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, and he is before all things, which we've already talked about, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. You remember we used to sing we were little, he said he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Well, he does. He is the one who is the sustainer of all creation. And so he holds everything together. He is the unifying principle, the personal sustainer of all creation. He's the divine glue, the spiritual gravity that holds creation together. I read a statement where someone says he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. He keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. He holds it all together. He's the sustainer of creation. Now, this is just verses 15, 16, and 17. Three verses in the book of Colossians. And I encourage you to read over those again and again and again for you to get an understanding of who this Jesus is that we worship. You see, it's, it's easy for us 
to begin to listen to the narrative that goes around in our culture and just say, well, he was just a good man. He was just a teacher. You know, he's here for 33 years. He died, uh, but he had some great things to talk about. Listen, he is not some historical character whose reputation and importance has been enhanced throughout the years. I mean, this is not like that, that Jesus came and then all of a sudden over the next few years, everybody began to add to his reputation and then we get here to the year 2017 and we make up these incredible stories of he's greater than this and he's this and this. This was written 30 years after he had died, risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. This was what the New Testament church knew. So when you were a part of a New Testament church back there in, uh, in 60 AD or in 50 AD, if you're a part of a New Testament church, this was what was being taught you. This same Jesus, the one that many of you held and saw and touched and seen, he is the author of creation. He is the one who sustains all creation. And so these new believers, these new Christians, they understood that. They understood that he was not just an itinerant preacher that was over here teaching. They realized this was truly the son of God. And he was the agent of creation. He's the sustainer of creation. He has put it all together. And they've always given the highest of honors to Jesus. But you see, today what happens, our culture tries to push Jesus out of our schools, push Jesus out of our government, push Jesus out of our businesses, push Jesus out of our public square, push Jesus out of our moral laws, and tries to make Jesus irrelevant. I'm just gonna tell you, on the surface, they may accomplish that, but in reality, he's not going anywhere. Because you see, Jesus is sustainer of all creation. He will be glorified in creation. And we can push back all that we want, but all it's going to do is just result in pain and suffering and disappointment. He is the sustainer of all creation. If I can just step out a little bit more and say he's the sustainer of our marriages. He's the one that's the sustainer of, of our nation. He's the one that's the sustainer of our relationships because he's the one that holds these things together. And so Paul, letting these people know in Colossae, listen, you don't need to add to Jesus. He is enough. He is supreme. He is supreme in creation, but then he goes and says he's supreme in the church. He's supreme in the church. In verse 18, verse 18 says that he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the church. When it means he's the head of the church, that meant that he was the source and the origin. He's the leader. He's the ruler. He is the one who's the origin of the church. He leads the church, and he rules the church. And the church is this living organism which Christ carries out his purposes, and there is this union between Christ and his people that's intimate and it's vital. So the church had its origin with Jesus, but it also has its operation in him. And as head of the church, the way that he works is that he brings people into the church, just like you folks here, and he gives you gifts and talents, spiritual gifts, spiritual talent, and, and, and gifted talents, and he brings you together and places you in a body of Christ so that you can work together so that not just so that this institution stays alive, but so that the message of Christ can be shown to others. You see, he, he kind of operates his church. He's the leader of the church. I'm not the leader of the church. I just got the opportunity to be the under-shepherd of the church and pastor the people. It is Christ's church. He is the leader. And so he brings people in to be a part of this church. 
And he knows what your gifts are and he knows what can be done through this ministries of this church so that we can advance his kingdom and so that God could be glorified. Not so that Shades Mountain Baptist Church can be written up in a publication or that we can pat ourselves on the back, not at all. It is that we can be able to glorify Christ and let it go out into this community, out the walls of this church and around the world because he deserves that praise. He is not only supreme in creation, but he is supreme in the church, and he is the head of the church. But he's the head of the church, but he is also the firstborn from the dead. And he says here that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The firstborn of the dead, so that in everything he may be preeminent. That means he's the first person to come back from the dead to have a true resurrection of life and never to die again. And he has authority over the resurrection of the dead. Because when Christ died on a cross and he took his body down from the cross and they placed him in a tomb, three days later he was raised from the dead and when he raised from the dead, over 500 people saw him for the 40 days he was here and then he ascended to heaven. And one day he's coming back. And so he says he's the firstborn over the dead. He has resurrected from the dead. He has got power over the dead. And so, and he does all of this so that in everything he may be preeminent. His resurrection sets the stage and guarantees that those who follow him will experience resurrection in the future. He himself is the head of everything. He should get preeminence. That is why when we have our times of worship, that it is to be centered around Christ because it says he has the preeminence because he is supreme. He is supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. And so it is all about Jesus and all about giving him honor and all about giving him the glory. And he says all of this is for his preeminence. Now, this young church, these young Christians, when they heard this, they took it in and they accepted it, and they lived it out. And syncretism, as it tries to invade into that church, is something that would not be warranted at all. Francis Schaeffer wrote about the early Christians, and this is what he says. The reason the Christians were killed by the Romans was because they were rebels. First, we can say that they worshiped Jesus as God, and they worshiped the infinite personal God only. The Caesars would not tolerate this worshiping of the one God only. It counted as treason. Now listen to this statement. If they had worshiped Jesus and Caesar, they would have gone unharmed. But they rejected all forms of syncretism. They allowed no mixture. All other gods were seen as false gods. They could have saved their lives if they had just said, okay, we're going to worship Jesus over here in our services, but now the Caesar's called on us and says he's God too, so we're going to walk over here and we're going to worship Caesar. And we're going to worship Caesar. Not really meaning to, but just know we're doing this, okay? And so I'm going to worship him and I'm going to worship God. And, and let's just see if we can put those two together. And they said no. They said, no. And they said, well, if you don't, well, we'll kill you. Then you can kill me. Because there is only one God. 
There's only one God, it's Jesus, and he is supreme. He's the only one that I can, that I can worship. And so today, as syncretism begins to slide into what we believe, we're a little nervous to make a stand for what the gospel says and to say, I'm just going to worship God, I'm gonna worship Christ as is taught in the New Testament. And that's where I wanna make my stand. But then we get some peer pressure and we're scared we're gonna hurt someone else's feelings over here. So we say, okay, I'll tell you what, that sounds pretty good what you say, so let's add yours to mine. And, and we'll do that and let's just embrace you and we'll embrace all this together and the syncretism because I don't wanna hurt someone's feelings. Okay, so, so we're not gonna take a stand for the gospel because we don't wanna hurt someone's feelings. In the first century, the Christians didn't wanna, they wanted to make a stand for the gospel and were willing to give their life for it. It wasn't just hurting someone's feeling. They said, I'm willing to give my life because this is the true gospel. Now that doesn't mean that we don't respect what other people believe. Yes, that's what you're supposed to. Scripture talks all about that we're to respect others, just to love others. You can get into healthy conversations. You can agree to disagree. And you can say, well, you believe this. Let me explain to you why I believe this. Listen, I still love you as an individual, and, and I'm, I'm here for you, and, and, um, and we can be friends, all those things, but I, I, just, I, I, can't, I just can't give this up. I can't compromise. And that's what Paul is telling the Colossians is he says, you don't need to compromise. You don't need to add other things to it. Jesus can stand on his own. He is supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. He is enough. Jesus is enough, and we don't need to add anything else to that, okay? So Jesus is supreme, but also Jesus is sufficient, and he is sufficient, sufficient for salvation. He is sufficient for salvation. After Paul spent these four verses talking about him being supreme in, in creation, supreme in the church, then he comes back and he talks about salvation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Why is he sufficient for salvation? How can we as believers say that Jesus only and Jesus is enough? Well, he's sufficient in his person and in his work. In his person, in verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. That means all the attributes, the activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory, all of these are perfectly displayed in Christ. They're all perfectly displayed in him. And because of who he is, he's sufficient for worship, uh, for, um, uh, for salvation. Because of who he is. Because see, we are lost in our sins which alienate us and separate us from God and only God himself could come and to help us. And so Jesus was God himself in the fullness of God. And then look what his work was, verse 20. And he says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, to reconcile. When you reconcile something, you go from enmity to friendship. You reestablish a relationship. Whenever you need to reconcile, it means that maybe like two people have had a falling out and so someone comes and says, I want to reconcile y'all, okay? We want to bring this friendship back together. Let's get you guys back together. Let's uh, go from enmity to friendship. Let's bring you in together. And so what Jesus did, he said, is that he came to reconcile. That was his work. 
He was fully divine, he was fully human. God took pleasure in all of this, and then God took pleasure even in his son going to the cross to die for our sins. Now it was a point to where God had to turn his back on his own son, but he knew this was the only payment that could happen, and he loved the world so much that he sent his son to take the sins of the world on him and to die for us. And then Paul says that he reconciled all things to himself. Now stay with me on this. Because we keep talking about all this, all this, all that, all things. So if he reconciled all things to himself, hang with me. He reconciled all things. That means he reconciled that uh, vertical relationship between man and God. He reconciled that relationship. He reconciled on a horizontal relationship, persons to persons. He also reconciled on a relationship between nature and God. Because you see, when the fall came in the garden, when sin entered the world, creation fell. We had a sin nature, and we became those who were born with that sin nature, and we were naturally sinners. All creation fell. And so all of this after Adam's sin, all this fall in creation has happened. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, and he conquered death, and he conquered sin, then all of a sudden there was hope again. Because for us, we can come into a relationship with God, we can be restored, we can be renewed, and uh, reconciled with him. Nature itself, in Romans chapter eight, says it is groaning for that day when Jesus Christ comes back again. And when he comes back again, then all of a sudden, all of nature will be reconciled to God too. He's done everything he needs to do. He's risen from the dead, conquered death, conquered sin, and one day when he comes back, the whole thing's going to be reconciled. And he said, this is what he's done. He's done all these things. Wow. You see, the Bible is not the story of man's search for God. It is God taking the initiative to reconcile man to God. And he does this through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he does it. He takes that initial step to come to us. And since creation has been created by Christ and exists for Christ, then there is a void if you have no relationship with the one who created you. And so Paul describes this in verse 21. <clears throat> he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's talking to the believers there at Colossae. And he says, you know what? At one time, you were alienated from God. You were alienated. You were separated from God. And you were separated, you were alienated from God because that sin had set you apart. Only in God can we understand our purpose in life. Only in God can we understand our worth and our values. And when we are alienated from God and have nothing to do with him, and we're looking to find purpose and value in the things of this world, it's going to come up empty. And so while I'm stuck here in the emptiness of the world because I'm alienated from God, he then says there was a hostility in your mind. The hostility in your mind comes because you get frustrated. I keep looking for worth, I keep looking for value, I keep putting it into the things of this world and they just never satisfy, they just never satisfy. And, and so there's this uh, hostility, this frustration, even this anger that builds up. And then that frustration leads to evil deeds. And I begin to do things that are wrong. And it all comes back because of the alienation from God. 
And so what we'll do is we kind of beat ourselves up and say, well, if I'll just do better things, then I'll be a better person. If I can just do this, maybe I can find meaning and worth in life. But as long as you're alienated from God, you'll never find that. You gotta solve the alienation problem first. You gotta solve this alienation from God because once you solve that and you're no longer alienated from God, then all of a sudden you begin to understand your purpose. You understand value, you understand worth because it's gone looking through his eyes and understanding what it is to be a part of that relationship. And then when that happens, that resolves the hostility of mine and it resolves the evil deeds. It's not you just bearing up, trying to do better and better. It is solving this alienation problem. And he says in verse 21, and you once were alienated and you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. Guess what Jesus did? Jesus goes to the cross and when he goes to the cross, he takes your alienation on himself. He takes your hostility of mind on himself. He takes your evil deeds on himself. And when he dies on that cross, he dies for your sins. And when he is raised from the dead, he's conquered all of that. And he takes your sins and then he exchanges them for what he says here. And that is holy, blameless, and above reproach. And that way, when you make a decision, you receive Christ as your Savior, and you come into a relationship with him, whenever he looks at you, he sees you holy, blameless, and without reproach. You know, what happened to all the alienation and the hostility and evil deeds? He took those. And this is how he sees that. You see, he is supreme in creation. He is supreme in the church, and he is sufficient for our salvation. Jesus solves, <clears throat> Jesus solves the alienation problem. And if you don't solve the alienation problem, you won't solve the hostility of mind and the evil deeds. You can't do those on our own strength. It can only be done by the one who has the fullness of God in him, and that is Jesus Christ. And then once we're no longer alienated from God, we find our worth, our value, and our meaning in life. And then what Paul says to this church in Colossae, he says, listen, folks, follow, follow kind of the logic here. Once that happens, then this is how I want you to live in it. And in verse 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Park here for a minute. If indeed you continue in the faith, Continue in the faith. Continue the things that we've been taught. Don't do the syncretistic gospel. Don't do all the other things people are mixing in there. If you continue in the faith, you're stable and you're steadfast. Stable and you're steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't reach other things. Don't reach out there and say, I gotta come up with a different Jesus or add to it. No, you stay stable, you stay steadfast. You don't move. Salvation is found in no one but Jesus Christ. He is our creator and he is our redeemer. He is supreme and salvation exclusive to Christ alone. He is the only way to salvation. So you take all of this, and this is just an incredible little nugget of scripture in there. And um, 
And I'm probably not doing the best of jobs to try to explain to you how incredible this is, but I think that too often we downplay the deity of Christ. And um, uh, I don't want to say this wrong, but you read through the Gospels and you need to read through the Gospels. It's incredible what you learn about who Jesus is and all these wonderful things with him. And, and as we're doing that, we have a tendency to forget what he says here in Colossians 1, that he, he's created, he's, he's been here since the beginning of time. I mean, he is eternal. He is the agent of creation. He is the one who holds the whole world together. And, and so when people come to you and they try to dismiss him as just a good teacher and take a couple of quotes and, wow, I like that Sermon on the Mount, and uh, treat your neighbor as yourself, that's good stuff that he said. Listen, that's demeaning to him. That is demeaning. He is not just some other Gandhi or some other teacher and just, just let's just put him in with some other great, great teachers over here. Uh, he's a motivational guy. Let's put him in with that group over there. You can't do that. He is the Lord. He is supreme. He's the one that created the world. He's the one that sustains creation. That's a big job. <laughs> That's an important person. And it's not someone that you can just lump in with other folks and say, hey, he's just part of any other little guy. Hey, let's just take all these little different religions just kind of add them in over there. He's beyond all that. And until we understand that, we will never make a stand for him. Because we'll begin to think, that, yeah, let's just lump him in. You can't. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He's supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. And he is sufficient for salvation. You don't need to add anything else on that. Good gracious. The fullness of God came to earth to down a cross for our sins, to take away that alienation from God. He's the only one that could do it. He's the only one that's done it. And so Paul in writing to these believers, he said, now listen, you just stand strong, stay steadfast, and, um, and don't shift one way or the other. Now, you take all of that and you say, okay, Danny, what do I walk out of here with? Okay, I'm gonna give you something that's so simple that in the midst of all of this, you can just walk out of here and you can tell somebody at work uh, tomorrow, hey, what'd your preacher talk about? Well, I can tell you real quick what he said. Are you ready? These are real easy. You can write these things down. First thing we gotta know is Jesus is enough. He's supreme. He's sufficient for your salvation. We gotta know that. So what do we need to do? Number one, you need to believe it in your head. Believe it in your head. You read this in Colossians chapter one and you believe it in your head. He is supreme. Number two is accept it in your heart. There's one thing to believe it in your head, but then you need to accept it in your heart. Reconciliation with God does not wait upon human achievement, but upon human acceptance. The, everything's been done. It's just a matter of will you accept it or not. So you just accept it in your heart. And then number three is you live it out in your life. And this is what Paul is saying. Live it out in your life. Be steadfast. Be stable. Don't be shifting. Live it out in your life. And last of all is set an example for others. Set an example for others. I love the way he closed this section because he says, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I've read that and it just jumped out at me. He, read, he wrote all of this 
And at the end, he says, you know, this gospel I'm telling you, I want you to do this, do this, I want you to stay strong with it, do all that, to which I, Paul, became a minister. And you look at the apostle Paul and you say, man, I want to be like that guy. He set an example. He left a legacy. And so when you believe it in your head, you accept it in your heart, you live it out in your life, and then all of a sudden you set an example for others to follow, that's pretty, that's pretty strong. It's pretty strong on there. So Jesus, he is supreme. Now, I think that you can take this passage, and if you had to summarize it in uh, two words, you could summarize it in the words rain and rain. But Danny, that's one word. No, there's two words for rain. One is R-E-I-G-N, when you reign over something that talks about supremacy, talks about rank. Jesus' kingdom reigns. He is the one who has started everything. Everything started with him, and his kingdom reigns. He is supreme. But then there's that R-A-I-N, reign, to where then he reigns down on us, his power, his love, his mercy, his goodness, his promises. He rains all those things down to us. He's not a deity that is stoic and disconnected. He is a God who loves us and is empathetic, and he rains down all these things on us. So he reigns and he reigns. His kingdom reigns, and then he reigns down on us. Love, power, mercy, goodness, promises of God. And if we just wrap our arms around this, then we can walk out of here knowing we're no longer alienated from God and that we are in a right relationship with him and we can know what our value, our purpose, and our worth in life is and then serve him with all we've got. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that... Um, that Paul has given us such a great insight as to who Jesus is and that, Lord, I just need to confess that there are times in my life and maybe others that I forget about his supremacy and his majesty and, um, and ask for forgiveness for when we lower him to a level that we have no right to lower him to. May we always uplift him because he deserves all the honor and all the glory. And I thank you that he is in the image of God. He is that agent of creation. And I thank you that he sustains all of creation, puts it all together and holds it together. And Lord, may we in this service take a look at our own lives and say, Lord, you are Lord of all. What is it in my life that I have not allowed you to do that. And may today, may we make the decision to truly make you Lord of all our life, even as you are Lord of all creation. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.